Good morning, City Lights. Good morning. Grab a seat. Hey, uh, for those of you who may not be technical, which is me, this is blinking red. So if it goes out in the middle of uh, the sermon, I'll grab this mic right here. I just wanted to forewarn you. Sometimes when a mic goes out in the middle of a sermon, people think the sky is falling, and it's okay. It's just technology. Um, I want to welcome you here. My name is Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here. And if you brought your Bible, I want you to open it up to the Gospel of Luke. It's in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book. And I want you to go to chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. The great Welsh preacher and evangelist Martin Lloyd-Jones would say the whole message of the Bible is just a message to tell us that the trouble of the world is essentially due to one thing only, and it is mankind's tragic refusal to listen to God, to listen to God. That has been the story of human history. That's the world that we live in. It's the reality that all humans across the globe live in is this nature in us from birth to not listen to God. And yet, God has still sought us out. God has still come after us. He's still spoken to us. He's still getting your attention and my attention today, is He not? He's still intervening in our lives. He's still seeking us and speaking to us. I'm going to take this off. Check, check. Oh, yeah. That's nice. Give me one second. Let's give it up for Terry. Thank you, Terry, so much. Wow, what a servant. Man of God. Man of God. Hey, in Luke chapter 4, what we're going to do is we're going to hone in on the beginning of Jesus Christ's public ministry. So we've seen the prophecies of, of his birth. Uh, we've witnessed the song that his mother sings. We have seen him um, go to the temple, I think, when he was 12, right? And they're amazed at what he knows and how he's able to talk back and forth with these teachers. Then we get a gap in the Gospel of Luke of like 18 years. And we just don't read anything. Uh, the next verse is like 18 years later, Jesus is around 30, and he's getting baptized, and the, the, the heavens are opening, and God is declaring, this is my son. And in another gospel, he says, listen to him. And um, so we're here now, and in particular, we're going to examine the words that Jesus speaks when he visits a synagogue, and he preaches perhaps the greatest sermon ever about himself. So I want you to imagine God in the flesh as a man preaching about what God is coming to do in the world. And you're in the room to behold it. It's a powerful scene. 
You're going to see as we read through this text today, it is a true, and I mean this, it is a mic drop moment, no joke. Um, it's rare that you read something that feels so uh, relatable to kind of the, the vibe of our day, where Jesus is going to say something, and he's going to just sit down, and all the people in the room are, are just going to be left stunned by what he says. It feels like a Hollywood scene. It really does. And so let me give a little context. Every Sabbath, the Jewish people would gather together in their local synagogue. And um, they would all together read and sing psalms. Okay, so an amazing side note. I want you to imagine God standing next to you singing to God. Like you're in the room. Jesus is there. It says he, he made it his custom to partake in worship. And what would happen is uh, the center of their worship was reading and preaching the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament. It was a weighty, holy moment. Someone would, an attendant, if you will, would take a holy scroll out of its container and begin to unravel and unroll it. And the teacher, the preacher, would select what scripture is going to be read, and he would remain standing throughout, and he would read. Oftentimes he would, you know, obviously read it in Hebrew and then translate for the people that were there into Aramaic. He would do no teaching yet, just reading. He would read typically from the law first, and then from the prophets. And as the reading concluded, while everyone was watching, the scroll would carefully be rolled up, and placed back into its container. Then the teacher would be seated on a chair, and that chair would typically be elevated, uh, raised in the room to signify his spiritual authority. And then he would begin to teach. Uh, at this time, in our scene that we're about to take in, Jesus actually already has renown. He's already become um, a bit of a, an a acclaimed figure. He if you read back in Luke chapter um, 4, verses 14 and 15, you won't see this on the screen, but it says, A report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus, the man Jesus, is a big deal. And I want you to just pick it up with me in verse 16. And we're just going to read this together. He came to Nazareth. Okay, Jesus, just pause real quick. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. That means that Jesus would have been um, invited to come and teach. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
This is Isaiah chapter 61. I didn't have a chapter back then. We have a chapter for it today. All of the prophets of the Old Testament in unison continued by God's divine inspiration to voice over and over and over again to say a Messiah is going to come for the people of Israel. A deliverer will be sent to redeem the people of God. And Jews believed that he would be a mighty person. He would come and he would establish a himself as king, and he would build an army and and a force that was great, and he would start something of an uprising, and he would conquer Rome and most of the countries of the earth, and he would raise up Israel to be the supreme nation of the globe, and this is what they believed. What Jesus was preaching right here and what he would turn around and accomplish did not look like that. It's not what he came to do. There were many preconceived notions about what the message of the Messiah was back then. The message of Christ. There are many preconceived notions about the message of Christ today. Maybe it's a way of living that sets you up for more blessings from God. Maybe it's a religious ladder to climb in order to earn something from heaven. It's a philosophy that helps you and I solve our own problems and sort of just dig deeper, discovering more depth into our soul, making us spiritual, mystical people. It's an example of how to be kind and loving. It's a tradition that's meant to be kept and meant to be even protected lest we shame our parents or our grandparents or the people who've gone before us. I don't know if you noticed, but everything I just rattled off centers around us and our will and our effort and what we can do and what we can achieve and what we can accomplish and what we can change. But Jesus himself has a different understanding of his message altogether. The good news, according to Jesus, is quite different. That's why I've titled this morning's message, The Gospel According to Jesus. There's many different definitions of what it is, but I want you to read with me verses 20 and 21. Right after Jesus reads all of this, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, the teacher's about to teach. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) Is that not amazing? Today, this scripture good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, the year of the Lord's favor, the coming Messiah, the deliverer, this has been fulfilled in your presence or in your hearing. The first thing we need to make sense of in the gospel according to Jesus is who it is for. Because right out of the gate, He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
I've been anointed to bring good news to the poor. To the poor. Now, it doesn't just mean material poverty alone. It carries with it a picture in the original language of a man uh, crouching or cringing like a beggar in poverty. Uh, It's the idea of a needy person, a person who is at the mercy of another person and is desperate, a person who cannot provide for their own needs. And I just want us to take inventory, city light, throughout the gospel, throughout Jesus's teaching, he makes it clear who the good news is for. He says things like this in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, if any man hungers, if any man thirsts, he says, I I came to call sinners, not the healthy, but the sick. He says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus didn't come for the proud. He didn't come for the person who's gotten there 99% of the way and just needs God's help with 1%. He came for the poor. Not only that, but he came for the captives. He came for the blind. He came for the oppressed, the abused. What this is painting for us is a picture of how sin damages and destroys our world and our lives. It's painting a picture for us of what life is like post-Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve decide to rebel against God and the corruption and death and chaos of sin enters into human history and becomes a normal part of our living and being. What sin does is it impoverishes our character. Anyone here want to raise their hand and claim to be perfectly righteous, without blemish, holy, pure, completely and totally selfless? Sin impoverishes our identity makes us completely forget who we are and who we belong to and who made us and who names us. Sin enslaves us to thoughts and habits and idolatry that is destructive. Sin blinds us. We don't see the truth and the reality about who God is and who we are, and we have moral and spiritual blindness. Sin abuses us through people and and words and experiences. It can crush and wound us. Many people in this room, you've had like really hard things happen to you in your life. You have been in very dark moments where someone with more power than you abused you, where something out of your control, grabbed your life and robbed it of joy and peace. 
my burden as we work our way through this is that we would build a solid rock on which to stand when how poor we actually are rears its ugly head in our life. Poverty is when we lose our loved ones, we lose our health, we lose our possessions, we lose our job, we lose our friends, we lose anything. And we have no reserve, no supply, no rock on which to stand, no link or connection to true life, no assurance of grace or good. We have nothing to celebrate. True poverty is when we lose things in our life and there is no love to celebrate, no riches to celebrate, no hope to celebrate, no mercy and grace to celebrate, no eternal wealth and blessing and bliss to celebrate, no contact with God, relationship with God, friendship with God to celebrate. How poor we truly are if none of what Jesus says in this passage sounds like really good news to us. In Isaiah chapter 66, just five chapters later, God says, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Church, if, if this is really what sin does, if it really does blind us, if it really does rob us, if it really does impoverish us, if sin really does harm us, and it does, then what Jesus Christ did at Calvary is the greatest deliverance, the greatest liberation, the greatest freedom that the world has ever seen or will ever see. We are messengers and ministers of this good news right here in Northwest O. And I just, I wonder, do we take this lightly? Do we realize that outside of this auditorium, this building, all of us will go back to normal life, right back to the things that you have to face head on, on a Sunday, maybe a Monday. You will jump right back into a world with men, women, and children, all of whom in one way or another, every day, are crying out for freedom. bowing down and worshiping and putting all stock, all weight, all hope on something that is not the work of Jesus Christ to heal and to redeem and to deliver and to forgive and to save and to keep for all eternity. And God's plan A for us 
is that we would deliver the same news that Jesus delivers in these moments. He comes and he says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is also known as the year of Jubilee. Jubilee. Jesus' listeners in Nazareth, they would have been very familiar with this because according to God's law, every 50th year, the law of Israel celebrated this. Slaves were set free from their servitude. Debtors were released from their financial obligations. People who had lost things that were theirs had their property restored back to them. And Isaiah the prophet, all the way back when, was speaking of a jubilee to end all jubilees. The day of salvation. When the Messiah would come and God would save his people. And here's what I want you to notice. Jesus actually stops a phrase short of what he is quoting. It helps us to, to see the nature of uh, prophecy. Here's uh, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2. It says, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't Jesus finish the sentence? Why did he stop and declare right there, this is being fulfilled in your presence? Because the work of Jesus is a two-part drama. And right now, you and I live in an age. It's a very long age. It's a gracious and patient age from our God where he continues to extend his hand of mercy and grace and pardon and forgiveness and relationship and contact with him that will one day end. When he comes back, to judge on the last day. The first coming of Jesus Christ ushered in not just a 365-day year, but a space of time in human history for salvation, not judgment. We live in that time right now. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We live in a day of God's great grace and patience. Right now, he's waiting. Right now, he's delaying his second coming because he desires that none should perish. He wants you, if you're in the room and you've not placed your faith in Jesus, to know him and to abide in him and belong to him and trust in him. He wants your family and your friends and your neighbors to know him. A day is coming. That is a day of vengeance, but that day is postponed right now. In Luke 4, 18 and 19, all those many thousands of years ago was Jesus proclaiming what is true and unfolding in our midst right now. I want to close with this. The way Jesus opens this is something to be borrowed from by you and I. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I have been anointed. Jesus had the Holy Spirit in full measure. 
But here's what's important to know. He was empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit throughout his entire ministry. And the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave is a Spirit that anoints and is upon you and I by faith in Jesus today. This ministry that's described here, people who are stuck in addiction and need chains to be broken, burdens to be lifted, people who are under satanic and demonic oppression around us, dark forces are manipulating and lying and working in their conscience and in their life, people right here among us who are fighting spiritual battles, Jesus has given us keys to the kingdom. He's given us his authority and he's invited us into his ministry. It's all about him. It's all about his power, his strength, his ability. But what a gift that we get to participate in that, that we get to walk in that. We are the body of Christ. Think about that. We are the body, the representation of Jesus Christ on the earth today, the church the body of Christ. That's us. The word anoint means to, to sprinkle on and to, to apply an ointment or a liquid to. And persons in the Old Testament were often literally anointed with oil. Priests would be anointed for a special service to the Lord. And it was an outward representation of the real spiritual presence and power of God within. Here is another reminder to you, church family, the Spirit of the living God is with you, on you, within you. If you came in here this morning and your goal has been to live your life by your strength, it's been to solve your problems with your wit and your prowess and your intellect, and it is faithless, it's not going anywhere. God has designed for you and I to be dependent wholly on him. And he is faithful. So, here's the last thing. If the greatest tragedy in human history is mankind's refusal to listen to God, what I want to invite our church to do is to choose to listen. Listen. Look around. If you're seeing things that Jesus is saying right here on this page that he came to do, and it feels like there is a gap in what you see in your life or the people around you, can I tell you why? It's because talking about Nebraska football and weather every time we're together does not open our eyes to the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's because small talk and the new fad, and the new thing, and whatever it might be, who's going to win the Super Bowl? It's the Chiefs, by the way, but it, all it does is give us momentary social satisfaction, but it closes our eyes to what God is presently doing right now in and around us. If you would just ask somebody their story, if you would just examine your life and take inventory of what God has done, you will see 
that Jesus has been and is presently working and freeing and healing and ministering and giving hope and giving peace. He's doing all those things, church, right now among us. And he longs to do more. So may we be a church family that looks and sees, that pays attention and listens to what God is speaking and doing in our midst. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you have given us your spirit upon us. Thank you for your anointing. Thank you, Jesus, that our hope is fixed securely in you. Thank you that the message of the gospel, while its implications do make a difference in our material world, it is our spiritual poverty and our spiritual chains and our spiritual debt that you have come to wipe clean and make new. This morning, I pray that we would receive it with gladness. That this would be a story we all recognize we are living in as it is unfolding before our very eyes. And Jesus, King Jesus, we look forward to and anticipate your second coming. We long for you to make all wrongs right, to wipe every tear from every eye, to heal, to restore, to bring justice, and to bring eternity. Thank you, thank you, thank you that by your grace and our faith, we get to partake in this. Who are we, God? You are so good, and you only do good. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.